that each of those levels of consciousness uh, becomes more awake and more um, illumined. So the mind, the daily, ordinary mind, becomes uh, calmer and clearer, and the prefrontal lobe, which is responsible for making decisions and clarity of judgment, that becomes a better tool of our, uh, of our daily life. Similarly, that uh, deeper level, that hard disk of our consciousness, uh, which contains all the memories and all the unresolved uh, feelings, we, can, we sense that that's becoming calmer. We feel that there's less anxiety or less restlessness in us because then we'll feel a deeper integration and harmony emotionally and that will probably reflect in our uh, in, in affective, li affective life, our feelings, our relationships with other people. And then that third level which where we open up to, this, to the transcendent, to the divine, to the spiritual dimension of ourselves, uh, this becomes, which is always there, and we are there already, you are that, as the Upanishads say, uh, I am with you, as Jesus says, so that deeper level is, 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 is awake and is alive and we are there, but we become more conscious uh, and present to that. <coughs> So this, this, all of this together is one process. It's not just a linear, consecutive pro process. We don't move from one level of consciousness and to another and then forget the previous level. And as I was saying, all human development and spiritual growth involves leaving the past behind, letting go of it, and allowing ourselves to, to be open to what comes next. And often, usually, we don't know for certain what is coming next. And until we put our second foot on the wire, we won't have a sense of balance and confidence. Uh, but when we do, you could say maybe the second foot on the wire is equivalent to the second meditation in daily life. Uh, when we do, and we are in a rhythm and a regular uh, practice, then uh, it's easier for us to live with uncertainty. Until then, uncertainty creates a feeling of anxiety. 
But once that uh, uh, rhythm and regularity is, uh, is flowing, we can live with uncertainty in a spirit of hope, in confidence, in faith. And then, what we have left behind, the past, can be reintroduced and reintegrated with us. So we don't, we don't reject it, we don't blank it out from our memory. Uh, and again, this may be a, a, a long process, but we reintegrate it, and that reintegration of the past with where we are now is healing. And we live life as a continuous healing process. So that was one sort of little map and way of looking at the, um, at the journey along this knife edge. Um, so I'd like to suggest another way of looking at it today, also drawn from the desert wisdom, the wisdom of the Christian desert, the early, the early monks who give us this teaching on meditation. <clears throat> the desert tradition uh, began and flourished for about maybe 150, 200 years. And it began in the late 3rd century or 4th century, beginning of the 4th century, at about the same time that Christianity started to become an institutional uh, religion. Until then, it was a marginal uh, religion, uh, sometimes persecuted, not all the time, but often persecuted because the Christians didn't quite fit in to the social um, and political system. The idea of worshipping the emperor, for example, was anathema to the, the Christian. On the other hand, as we see in some of the letters from the, the New Testament, the Christian leaders said, there's no reason we can't live in the world and be good citizens and pay our taxes and be decent, law-abiding people. However, we have certain principles and certain values and certain insights that we have to respect. So sometimes these values of the Christian uh, communities, small little churches, not big institutions, but these small Christian communities sometimes fell foul of the, uh, of, the, uh, of the state and there were periods of persecution, but not all the time. Anyway, during this period, there was the, the, the uh, Christian life and the teaching and the way of life associated with it, above all, it was a way of life, a communal way of life, a way of life in which people helped each other when they were in need where they were, of course, human beings constantly involved with conflict and, and, uh, and problems, but they had uh, a commitment to a way of dealing with conflict and a way of living together, which we see described in the early 
literature. And this was impressive to, the, to many of the surrounding uh, institutions and individuals. So the church grew in numbers, but it grew as a community, clearly. Then, uh, the Emperor Constantine, for various political reasons, decided that uh, he would recognize Christianity and give it freedom to flourish in the empire. And increasingly, because it was widespread and it had a basic infrastructure, he began to use it uh, as a way of uh, running his own uh, secular empire. And so increasingly, uh, Christianity became identified as an institution, anyway, with the state, with the secular powers. And suddenly, the church began to fill up with numbers. So it was now fashionable to join the, to join the, uh, the church. So St. Ambrose in Milan in the 4th century, uh, century said um, the, 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 the bark of Peter, the, the, the boat of Peter, is, uh, is now so full of people that it's in danger of sinking. So this meant, of course, with increased numbers and official recognition, the spiritual quality, the spiritual depth, mm -hmm. became diluted. And as, a and, and as a response to that, we see the beginning of the monastic movement. And the monastic movement, as I said, began in the, in the Middle East, where everything began in the Middle East. It began in Egypt and in Syria, especially, but it was in the northern desert of Egypt, not, <coughs> not too far south of Cairo or Alexandria, that uh, the Christian monastic movement really began to flourish. And it had two forms. Uh, it was, uh, there were hermits, but hermits meet every so often and discover, uh, discuss what it's like to be hermits. So you have hermits, but you also have, uh, you also had uh, the formation of small communities. Communities took different shapes and forms and different rules of life uh, emerged. Some kind of organization has to, has to be present. Um, but in many of these communities, there would be a mixture of solitude and communal life. So the monks might live in their cells uh, around about the, in the desert area, and then they would come together on Sundays and maybe other days for, uh, for prayer, for the Eucharist, they would only have the Eucharist once a week, and then with, um, with time for sharing and teaching. But the real dynamic of the desert spirituality was the relationship between the Abba, or the Amma, men and women teachers, and the Abba and the Amma, were experienced uh, spiritual teachers. And students, beginners, would come to the desert and attach themselves in a personal way 
to one of these uh, teachers and th that relationship would be central to their spiritual growth and development. And the, the, what we know of the teaching of the desert comes to us through a collection of sayings, short, pithy, apothematic sayings. Uh, one of the first, most famous ones would be Saint Anthony of the Desert, who I'll come back to in a moment. Saint Anthony calls, oh, Abba Anthony, they called him Abba Anthony, called all the monks of his community together. And he said to them, always breathe Christ. Now you can go back. <laughs> so it's a long way to come for a short, a short sermon. So the teaching of the desert, mothers and fathers, was distilled above all in these short, uh, in this collection of short sayings and stories. Similar in some ways to Zen stories, Zen-like stories. In fact, there are some stories that are present both in the Zen tradition and in the uh, Christian monastic tradition. Um, there's a famous one of um, uh, uh, an older monk with his disciple who came to the side of a river and they had to cross the river and there was a, a nun there having difficulty getting across. So the young monk picked up the, the nun and carried her across. And um, then they walked on together for some time. And the monks were not supposed to be touching women, as in Thailand today. Uh, and so uh, after walking for some time, the, the older monk said to the younger one, you know, and the, the nun was there, uh, you know, you shouldn't have picked, you shouldn't have carried her, you shouldn't have picked her up. And the nun said, who was walking with them, she said, she said, he only carried me for five minutes across the river. You've been carrying me for the last few hours, thinking about this and worrying about this. So the women in the desert stories are often very sharp, wise women who put the monks down, as happens in ordinary life all the time. So, uh, so they had a, although there, there are more sayings of the desert fathers than mothers, the stories about the desert mothers are very important to understanding the, the balance, really, of the desert. So. So this is, this is the, the context, really, of, uh, of the desert Christian monastic movement, which has produced a body of teaching through the sayings of the desert fathers and mothers, and also the conferences of John Cassian, which 
through which John Main recovered the tradition of meditation that we practice. The ninth and tenth conferences of Cassian are about prayer and this way of meditation. So this is this is the context, and it's still a very uh, a very uh, strong and and alive uh, spiritual wisdom, <clears throat> and I think touches many people today um, who are seeking wisdom, seeking uh, spirituality, because the, the wisdom of the desert was a very practical wisdom. It wasn't about dogma, it wasn't about even the sacraments. There's very little uh, it, about the sacraments or, ex or external forms of prayer in these desert teachings. Clearly they did celebrate the Eucharist together, but there's not a lot of stuff about going, going to Mass or, or doing the sacraments. When they spoke about prayer, and they spoke about prayer all the time, the prayer they meant was the prayer of the heart. They called it pure prayer, or ratio pure, or meditation. So everything for them was about the, a personal transformation, the transformation of the whole person, body, mind and spirit, and at the heart of that transformation was the practice of meditation and the relationship with your, with your Abba or your Amma. And in that relationship there was a kind of a contract, not an official contract, but a contract, an agreement or a relationship and in which, on the one hand, the, the student or the disciple committed to complete openness to his or her teacher. Complete openness. Holding nothing back. And on the, in response to that, the teacher, the Abba or the Amma, would remain faithful to the student whatever happened. However unfaithful the student might be, the, the teacher remained there for them. So it was a, a spiritual um, friendship and relationship which had great depth and was seen as a, a reflection of the relationship uh, of, each, of each of them and each of us with Christ as the teacher within. And, uh, and also was seen as, um, as reflecting the, the, the way, the human way in which the Spirit works and guides and shapes us. So that, that personal relationship at the heart of the desert wisdom was, was um, central really to that movement. Anyway, the typical encounter, archetypal sort of encounter, would be that the disciple would come to the teacher and say, you know, I'm really going through a tough time. I don't think I can stay here. I'm just not working for me. So he would, he would speak, or he or she would speak, 
unload themselves and <coughs> say what they're feeling and the teacher would listen and discuss and reflect and use their insight and wisdom and then at the end of the encounter the, uh, the teacher says now go back to your cell and your cell will teach you everything and so the cell the place where the, where the monk lived was a symbol of, um, of the heart really it was the outward form of this inner room that Jesus tells us to go into when we pray. <clears throat> so, when you go to your room here, or where you're staying, when you go to your room here, you're going to your cell. So the cell is a place of solitude, uh, but it's a solitude within the network of spiritual friendship and relationships uh, that make the community. So it's a combination of solitude and community. To understand that, we have to see that solitude, in French it's difficult uh, to express this, I think in Italian as well, because la solitude means both solitude and loneliness. But in English we have two words, solitude and loneliness, and maybe the, it's always difficult to find the French word for loneliness, isolement, alienation, no, no, being, anyway, being uh, on your, feeling disconnected, the loneliness of the modern age, the loneliness of big cities. So that feeling of maybe being in the middle of a crowd, but also being disconnected and isolated. So solitude and loneliness. Solitude is the opposite of loneliness. Solitude is the recognition and the discovery in your cell, in your inner room, of your own unique identity. And discovering that unique identity as being in relationship to and in communion with everyone and everything. So it's this combination, this paradox really, of being unique and being connected with everyone. So solitude then is the cure for loneliness. Because um, because loneliness is this feeling, I am unique, but I'm not connected. Therefore, I am desperate. I am alone in the universe, in the cosmos. Um, and loneliness, in that understanding, is a failed solitude. It's the failure to find your, your true self. In solitude. So the desert wisdom uh, is, is based upon this journey to God, which involves a discovery of ourselves, the purification of our own block, blockages 
and obstructions and negative habits that we've been talking about. <coughs> so there is a purification, purificatory process that we have to go through in order to find ourselves. So it is, it is about solitude, but no less it is about communion and community. Heaven, uh, there's one, one of the Desert Father sayings is, life and death lie with your neighbor. Life and death are connected with your neighbor, with your relationship to other people. So the quality of your life, whether you are alive or whether you are half dead, is going to depend upon your relationship with other people. So that's, uh, uh, so just finally I was going to talk about Saint Anthony of the Desert, who's the archetypal first Christian monk. Um, his life, written by Saint Athanasius, is a, a wonderful life, or an allegory, really, of the spiritual journey, which became central to the desert mythology and the desert wisdom. So, uh, Anthony, as a young man, came from a rich family. And one day, when he was, he was a Christian, one day when he was attending church, the gospel was that gospel in which Jesus says, go and sell everything you have and give to the poor and come and follow me. And at that moment, this, this word of Jesus touched his being and shook it and created a revolution, conversion in him. And uh, anyway, he went and did that. He sold everything he had and, and became a monk. And then he uh, lived for the next, whatever it was, period of time uh, in, in the desert, but began to become uh, well-known and people began to come out to see him. And at the age of 35, which is the Jungian age, where you, you take a plunge into deeper uh, interiority, uh, Jung said after 35, all your essential questions of life are about, uh, about meaning and about uh, the inner journey. So at the age of 35, he withdrew deeper into the desert and he walled himself up, he locked himself up in this uh, abandoned fort and just had his friends agree to come and bring him food and drink every day. And this went on for 20 years. So this is the story, anyway. So for 20 years. And after 20 years, his friends thought, well, he's, he's either dead or he's crazy. So we better go and check on him. So they came and knocked down the fort door. And there was Anthony standing in front of them. And the description is very important. He was standing there in 
fine physical condition, neither too fat nor too thin. And his skin was glowing, he was radiant. So he was in full physical fitness and health and harmony. His eyes were bright and uh, present, fully engaging with everybody. And he spoke rationally and clearly and calmly. So this is after 20 years of eating bread and water uh, locked up in this fort. The meaning of which, the symbol, symbolic meaning of which is, of course, that our asceticism is meant to bring us to physical, mental, and spiritual health and integration, to flourish, not to punish us, as we've been talking about Lent. The purpose of Lent is to become fit, spiritually, mentally fit, fitter, healthier, more agile, coming to our potential. And then, uh, Sir Athanasius says, for the next 30 years, St. Anthony devoted himself to comforting the sorrowful, reconciling the divided, and caring for the and healing the sick. So, this is the fruit of his ascetical and contemplative practice. What is the first one? I've forgotten that. It was healing the sick, yeah. he reconciling the divided, and, uh, and, and comforting the sorrowful. Yeah. Thank you. So not a bad way to live. So the purpose of our spiritual practice is not a private kind of enlightenment that we, in which we have to, you know, cultivate our own little private garden. We have to undertake that work of solitude in our uniqueness. It takes time, but the, the test of it is that we become healthier human beings and more loving people. So we say when we teach meditation, if you don't become a more loving person after 20 years, we give you your money back. <laughs> Without interest. So, anyway, there's a little background to the desert tradition. And one of the ideas of the desert tradition that I'd like to um, describe now we might call the stages or the cycle of, of the spiritual and ascetical life that we're living if we meditate regularly and if we live uh, a life that tries to achieve some kind of balance, as we've been talking about, between work and rest, and between work, rest and play, and between reading and sleeping and reading and working and so on. So the balance of our, of our life. So, 
They would say, when we begin the spiritual journey, we begin with a high level of enthusiasm. So, for example, we hear about meditation, or we come across somebody who introduces us to it, and it sounds very simple and easy, and uh, we become very enthusiastic. We, something in us responds to it immediately, as I told you happened to me, and uh, you really want to do it. Sometimes um, people become really enthusiastic and they say, well, you know, can I meditate more than twice a day? You know, could I meditate you know, four or five times a day? And uh, so that, there's that initial enthusiasm. Um, and that initial enthusiasm might burn out. You remember the story of the, of the parable of the sower in the Gospel, where the sower is spreading seed on the ground. Some of the seed falls on rocky ground and it uh, is immediately well, eaten by the birds, so it doesn't last. You just have a moment of enthusiasm, but when you go home, you, 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 it's all gone. Some of the seed uh, does take root and grows, but um, the sun, uh, when the sun gets uh, strong, it, it, it burns away and the little plants die for lack of water. So Jesus says this is like the cares of the world. Your problems, your, all the stuff you, on your plate, uh, all, your, all your worries become too much and again the enthusiasm for the, for the meditation, for example, uh, disappears. But some of the seed falls on good ground and the seed that falls into good ground and is cared for will produce a harvest of even up to a hundred times greater than what you invested. So, everybody, I think, is contained, is reflected in that story. There are parts of us which are like the stony ground, which uh, rejects the uh, the, the, the enthusiasm or the enthusiasm dies very quickly but there's another part of us where, this, where the, the word the seed uh, grows in us quietly over time and produces the harvest so we are we contain all aspects of that of that parable I think but enthusiasm anyway takes us so far it's a good way of beginning it's maybe the equivalent of the romantic stage of, of, a, of a loving relationship where you fall madly in love and you think you will never have another problem in the world. You have everything you ever wanted, everything you needed, and uh, you, everything is, is, is great. Yeah. Then, the next stage this one carefully because this is a dangerous one is called Achadia and for the desert monks this Achadia was 
one of the great dangers of the spiritual life and of the life in the desert. So this is a, you could say, a kind of a spiral down from enthusiasm to the point of a chadia, which is a feeling of deep discouragement. You feel that it's not worth it. It's failing. It was a mistake. You can't do it. Um, Achadia is uh, described also as a kind of a lack of care. I mean, literally, etymologically, the word means a lack of care. So it's a lack of care for yourself. You just cannot care for yourself as you, as you did before. But it's also a lack of care for your relations with the world around you. You just don't care anymore. The two senses of caring, aren't they? Caring meaning looking after, being kind to someone or to yourself. And then there's caring in the sense of um, like, uh, being responsible to and responsible for. So there's caring for your body or caring for your, your car, keeping your car in good shape or caring for your room, so your room is clean and tidy. So when you are in the depths of Achadia, you just don't care anymore. So it's very close to depression. And the, there's, a, there's both a psychological and a spiritual uh, way of looking at this inevitable part of the spiritual journey of, of human development. And it could be related to burnout, for example. There are people who fall into Achadia uh, by overworking, and then they, they end up not caring for the people that they should be caring for. So you, you can speak to doctors or nurses who are overworked, the parents, I suppose, as well, who are overworked, and they, they give themselves generously and totally to the people they're caring for, but they're not caring for themselves. And they don't notice the first signs of burnout. Burnout doesn't just happen instantly where you fall on the ground and you start screaming or you, or you have to be taken away. The burnout is, is, a, is a, a process of descending into isolation, into loneliness. And where your work, you now have no enthusiasm left for your work. Because you just cannot care. It's not that you are choosing, not, yourself, not that you're selfish, but you haven't cared for yourself and therefore just inevitably you begin internally to um, to burn out. And one of the first signs of burnout is that you can continue to do your work, but your heart is no longer in it. 
So for, when you speak to medical professionals who suffer burnout, for some time b before they hit the wall, they are able to go through the motions. They do their job. They give the medication, they see the patients. But it's as if there's a wall between them and the people they're caring for. So this essential element of healing, which is the personal attention and the personal relationship, the personal care, is no longer there. And the same thing could happen with parents, who are working very hard, who are doing everything for the child, except giving the child that quality of personal attention and time that they need. So, um, burn, uh, uh, Achelia could be identified to some degree with burnout, different degrees of burnout, and you can intervene in that process and, and, and pull yourself out of the nosedive and recover yourself uh, or not. Um, it can also be related to depression. And with depression there is always a kind of a substratum of anger. Uh, and it may manifest itself also in various forms of self-harm, either physical or various forms of addiction. And many overworked and overstressed people uh, deal with their problem by, uh, by addiction or substance abuse. Thomas Aquinas, a theologian in the 13th century, says, says has a treatise, a little essay on uh, Achadia, and um, he relates it to a passage in 2 Corinthians, letter of St. Paul to the Corinthians, uh, where, he, where he describes how when difficulties come to you, there are two ways of dealing with them. If you deal with suffering in the world's way, it will lead to death, spiritual death. If you deal with it in a spiritual way, it will lead to a change of heart and to a transformation which will lead to growth and, and deeper knowledge of of love. So Aquinas says that Achadia is where we deal with suffering in the world's way, and that leads to death. So the uh, phenomenon of Achadia, which is described in the desert literature, uh, is not limited to people living as monks in, in the Egyptian desert. We see it in modern life, in institutions and in professions, uh, everywhere, more and more. Achadia, the, the mental illness, the mental suffering, 
that is prevalent in our affluent society. The price we pay for affluence and technology and all the conveniences we've developed is often a chadia. Uh, this is a description of, of a monk in the desert in the fourth century, described by John Cassian, uh, showing the symptoms of a chadia. So the monk comes out of his cell and he looks about anxiously, this way and that. And he complains that none of the brethren have come to see him. And often he goes in and out of his cell, doesn't know whether he should be in it or outside of it. And he frequently looks up at the sun and as if it was too slow in setting. And, and therefore, Cassian says, an unreasonable confusion of mind takes possession of him like a foul darkness. So his mind becomes confused uh, and unreasonable. Because when you're in the <coughs> state, you're not like St. Anthony of the desert, after his 20 years of fasting, uh, you're, you're unreasonable. And it takes possession of you. It overwhelms you. So, <clears throat> so that, I don't know if uh, that gives you a sense of what Ashadia means. And we, anyone who begins any journey will feel Ashadia at some point. You know, Henriette left for her mission in the Caribbean this morning. So what, did she make, what did she get stuck at the airport? for six hours at, uh, at Heathrow. She'll probably feel this is not worth it, this is terrible, you know. Anyway, so whenever, whenever we commit ourselves to a journey or to a relationship or to a spiritual practice, we will inevitably find ourselves dealing with Achadia, some kind of discouragement, loss of enthusiasm. So how do we deal with it? We deal with it by going to our cell and sitting in our cell and learning what the cell of self-knowledge will teach us. But how do we do that when we're feeling very restless and unmotivated? We need help and love and care from other people. We need the community. Without that, Achadia could easily overwhelm us. And then, the desert wisdom has a beautiful conclusion to this. They say, the child, oh sorry, here is apatheia, the next stage. And apatheia is defined as the health of the soul. This is when you are in a really good place. This is when your mind, this is where and your, and your body and your spirit are working together. And you're flourishing. And you feel peaceful and integrated and energized and whole. 
and you can turn your attention away from yourself to other people. You have energy to serve and to love others. The apatheia is uh, where we would like to be, the health of the soul. Maybe it's what uh, secular spirituality calls well-being. Well, most big corporations today will have a, a well-being program, wellness program. But it's much more than that. <clears throat> and then there's a beautiful conclusion to this cycle in the Desert Wisdom. It says, the child of apatheia is what you think is the child of apatheia. Desire, fulfilling desire, the union, sexual uh, eros. You have philia, which is friendship, and you have agape, which is the, the boundless love of God, the, the love that never dies, the love that never fails, that is continuously flowing out. So we can see this, I think as a cycle as well. Because once you're in agape, you recover your enthusiasm. But it's a more mature and deeper enthusiasm than at the beginning. Uh, and because of human nature and time, that enthusiasm may also pass through a desert from time to time. Then you recover your health, but then you recover it at a deeper level of integration. And, and then you realize <coughs> more that, um, that the, the driving force of this cycle of growth, of development that we pass through continually, is love. There's something that's pushing us, guiding us, taking us through, pulling us through the Achadia and keeping us <coughs> on the road, keeping us going. <coughs> and that is the Agape itself. <coughs> so that's another way of looking at, uh, at the journey. The other one is the levels of consciousness. This is more, if you like, the stages of a cycle of growth. 